Hello and welcome to the BV Magazine podcast, your genuine slice of rural Dorset life. This is April 2023 and it's episode three. Hello from me, Terry Bennett. And hello from me, Jenny Devitt. We have a slightly longer than normal episode this time, but actually just two items. Former BBC and Classic FM broadcaster Natalie Ween gives her choice of Dorset Island Discs. And where have all the NHS dentists gone? Rachel Rowe reports. But first, here's Jenny. This month's Dorset Island Discs have been chosen by Natalie Ween. Until she stopped broadcasting a few years ago, Natalie was London-based and well-known to listeners of Classic FM, BBC Radio 3, Radio 4 and The World Service. She introduced and talked knowledgeably about operas, concerts, the proms and documentaries. Her broadcasting career spanned well over 30 years, and then she disappeared from the airwaves. Olive oil had taken over her life. She and her friend Deborah Macmillan have been producing top-quality extra virgin olive oil from their groves on the island of Lesvos in Greece since 1996. Just 18 months ago, they moved to North Dorset, and Natalie says she's not regretted one day of the move from the big city, loving being in the countryside and everything about it, even, she says, not minding the rain. Her first choice of disc is a 1990 recording of now 80-year-old John Elliot Gardner conducting the Monteverdi Choir and English Baroque soloists in Monteverdi's Vespers in the Basilica of San Marco in Venice. And she chose this because she heard him perform this same work at the proms in the Royal Albert Hall in 1968. I asked Natalie if she'd previously heard the Vespers in their entirety. No, I'd heard bits. I'd heard bits. And of course, one knows about it because he's a, he's, um, a key figure in the development of modern music. Because um, he, he brought drama and he brought excitement, he brought colour, he brought um, even... Um, I might even say sex, actually, because it's very, very, very athletic music. It's fabulous, as well as being very emotional and, and dramatic. Anyway, that first performance at the, of, um, in the proms just knocked everybody's socks off. The people who had known him in Cambridge knew all about it. He'd done one or two things, one or two performances in Cambridge. But the then controller of music, or Radio 3 of BBC, William Glock, who was an absolute force for interesting things, gave him a prom. And instead of having serried ranks of large ladies with sort of black dresses in ranks above an orchestra and a conductor wagging a stick, we had very strange instruments on the, on the, on the stage. And then the, the thing pro- pro- progressed with the singers coming in from round the back, down the side, up the top. And it was absolutely astonishing. It's astonishing. There's a wonderful video recorded at St Mark's, in St Mark's in Venice, which is where it was written, which will show you how it works. You can get it on YouTube, bits and pieces of it. The sound is just electrifying. You, you, you know, if you've been listening to soggy, symphonic <laughs> scratchings through Tchaikovsky, this was like having your mind blown. And, and did it, did, did, do you think the sound uh, and the effect was the same as it would be in... Would have been in St Mark's. I've no in idea. Venice. Well, I went, you, you know, never the, heard it in Venice. Never so. heard it. I hadn't heard it in Venice. But you know, the Albert Hall being a, an echoing bathroom, pretty good, I expect. Not as it wouldn't have been as clean, I think, as in in, in St Mark's, which is an enclosed space as opposed to. Don't know what the Albert Hall is really. But. Would Monteverdi have written it 
for St. Yes. Mark's. Yes. So he knew what the acoustic Absolutely. was like. He knew what the acoustic was like and he knew what the effect would have been of having antiphonal choirs sort of throwing the sound from one side to the other, the little sort of, uh, what do you call it, balconies in St. Mark's. Extraordinary. Well, the video is um, revelatory. I, when I was thinking about which, which performance I should I listened to the whole of Mon the Monteverdi Vespers as recorded in St. Mark's Venice. Um, a bit later on, it must have been in the 80s, I think. Interesting member of his choir, his chorus, was a very, very young Bryn Terwell, Sir Bryn. Which is would, now... would, would we have recognised him? No, he was just one of those singers. Straight out, almost straight out of school? Probably, yeah. The start of his career. Mm. Your, your next record choice was, mm. or would be, a work by Tippett. Oh, well, yes. Um, see, I spent age, like, ages and ages trying f fruitlessly to be a performer, which luckily I was, as soon as I walked to the Royal College of Music, I realised this is not for me, I am in the wrong place. As you could walk to the door and you could hear um, you know, pianists thundering up and down with arpeggios and scales and all that and singers shrieking their heads off. I thought, oh no. Um, Why did you decide it wasn't for you? Because I couldn't do it that fast, shall we say. <laughs> also, I don't think I wanted to be that stupid. Because... Not very complimentary. No, you have to be single-minded. You have to be single-minded as a musician. You also have to love it, absolutely, you know, um, almost to the point of being blinkered to anything else. And I was always interested in too many other things. People said to me, you, God, you grew up in London in the 60s. That must have been fantastic. I said, I was so busy practising the piano, I missed it. You know, that's the thing. So, um, cut a long story short, I, I worked it very well with my, my professors that, that um, I didn't practise and that they wouldn't take no notice of it because I was going to do other things. For example, my fiddle teacher was the leader of Covent Garden Orchestra. I didn't think he was a very good teacher. I was an appalling fiddle player. So I said, Charlie, Charles Taylor was his name, very, very nice, charming man. I said, why don't you tick me off on the register and spend an extra half hour digesting on the pub or whatever it is, but give me the rehearsal passes for Covent Garden. Which he did. And I spent most of my second year at college in the opera house. <laughs> so tell me, Natalie, did you actually come, come out of the, the college with, with a degree? Oh, God. Did you qualify? Oh, my dear, I'm a Bachelor of Music. And I have the <laughs> so Associate of the Royal College of Music. I can play bits and pieces enough, but, you know, to what end? And anyway, um, but I then joined the BBC quite by chance, meeting, meeting, meeting people. I mean, you know, that sort of thing. And became a producer. And Michael Tippett was always on my horizon as um, the most extraordinary um, personality, really. But also the music is a really, really interesting. Difficult, but interesting. And how did that little click start? Actually, when I was at school, and I can't remember the date, it was the consecration of the, of the newly built Coventry Cathedral. And there were two pieces of music commissioned. One was Benjamin Britten's War Requiem, and the other was Michael Tippett's King Priam, his second opera, where the attitude towards memorial for a war couldn't be more diametrically opposite. Britain is very sweet and sentimental and, you know, full of Wilfred Owen poems and 
and a sort of mixture of that with the requiem mass, and it's everybody. Has, it's probably get. sacrilegious. You're saying this. Absolutely, <laughs> that's fine. Um, um, it's a bit saccharine to me, compared in comparison with King Priam, which is about the futility, the ridiculousness, and the um, the fact that it will repeat itself again and again and again. There's a great, great, great aria where Priam says to somebody rather, "So you killed my son, and my son, son will kill your son, and so on and so on." Anyway, that's and nobody. Interestingly, nobody has done King Priam in all those you know First World War memorials or or uh, anniversaries or the Second World War anniversary. Very interesting because it's very hard hitting for our woke. It might be um, what's the word? It might um, shock students. You know, they won't be safe with it. They certainly won't be safe with it. But they would be safe with the Concerto for Double String Orchestra, which is an early, early, early piece. And I think shocked the, the cotton socks off the management because it's so beautifully exuberant using English folk song, but not in a sort of twee way. And um, it's full of life and rhythm. And then we move on to a, a, another artist, who, a musician who was great at rhythm, Claudio Arau. Claudio Arau, who was... Um, at one, t I mean, he was really one of the, to the top pianists around, and he was slightly annoying because quite often he would cancel. Why he would cancel? Because he didn't feel like it. He didn't um, didn't feel in the right place um, emotionally or intellectually, and he or there was something annoying him, or the piano had been dropped, that sort of thing. And he got very bad press from the critics, who said you can't rely on him to come to a concert, which of course interested me because I like people who are difficult. And I just love the way he... He's also... It's an old-fashioned style. He's not a note shoveler. He's not... You know, he doesn't play enormously fast pieces all the time. And uh, he wasn't at all sexy either. He was a very small, dapper, Latin American, Chilean gent with a little moustache. Very proper. Stayed in the Savoy. And who's always been top of my list for serious, serious performances, Beethoven and Brahms, and all those sort of solid works. He was, he, he'd left Chile when he was nine or something awful, sent to Berlin to study with, I can't remember, Martin somebody rather, who was the pupil of Franz Liszt. So it was really, you know, hotline to major um, pianistic virtuosity. And then his teacher died. And he went round the bend. He was had a breakdown when he was 14. And he um, had psychotherapy analysis, I think, probably. <laughs> he came out of it and became this extraordinary pianist. And he, that was, he said to me, there, are, there is one thing I must say to, to all musicians, that you have to have psychoanalysis. Because if you don't know who the hell you are as a person, how can you interpret somebody else's creation? Which I thought was quite interesting. And the second thing he said was, and you have to have dancing lessons, because if you don't have a sense of rhythm, how can you make music? Terribly funny. I gave a party, and I had a dance floor on the thing, and a lot of musicians came, and there was a wonderful moment when, in between tunes, I think, and there was a voice from the dance floor saying, I didn't know you couldn't dance. I won't tell you who it was about, but one of our most distinguished conductors. <laughs> so that kind of um, 
put a, a, a microscope on the performances of that person. But anyway, back to, back to Claudio Arau. You, you need a sense of rhythm. This is not a, not a waltz or, a, or anything flash. It's a nocturne, a very, very simple nocturne of Chopin, where you listen to the bass line and you realise that this is sort of, it, it um, holds the whole piece together. And the, the right hand side, the right hand can sort of do things, but the, the inexorable rhythm is in the bass, but not just in the bass going plonk, 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 but it, it, it produces a spring in the bass, which is quite extraordinary. I remember having a major row with somebody about a pianist who was playing accompanying dance with sort of waltz music and things like that, with an absolutely lumpen performance, with no rhythm, no spring, no nothing. And I said, play this piece and you'll see. So, well, of course, it stands to reason, you, if, if you don't have a sense of dance, you don't really have a sense of music, no your musical rhythm. No. Two absolutely inextricably... Brilliant, Jenny. I heard a, I heard a, um, a broadcaster on Radio 3 saying, fatuously, <laughs> there, is, there is quite a lot of rhythm in dance, isn't there? <laughs> say no more, say no more. <laughs> we should move on to your uh, next... Oh, your, well, this, this is again, it's rhythm. Colin Davis, oh, wonderful heart conductor. Heartthrob heart too. Oh, <laughs> well, I went out about 14. We had school expeditions to Oxford Town Hall to listen to Berlioz. I mean, for goodness sake, when I was 14, which is before the Punic Wars, nobody ever heard of Berlioz, but they do now, thanks to Colin Davis. Anyway, that's, that's one of his gorgeous things. Um, he was extremely difficult as a, as a person to interview. Um, Why was that? Well, he didn't want to be interviewed, and he, he mumbled. So I got to the stage where I practically had to make him swallow the microphone. He said, Actually, this is no good, this is no good. <laughs> But um, <clears throat> he was, he was he, one of our really, really top musicians, Covent Garden, but Sadler's Wells, Covent Garden, London Symphony Orchestra. Then he went to the Bavarian Radio Symphony Orchestra, which I have chosen as one of my records. And then he came back to the London Symphony Orchestra and said, now they've decided they're going to be musicians. He was very outspoken, adorable, adorable. But... Um, Right up your street. Absolutely fact, right up my street. I'd actually said to him, why are you being so beastly? I've been sent to interview you for a programme somewhere or other. And he said, oh. And um, I said, you know, just be reasonable. People are going to listen to you. Oh, OK, fine. <laughs> and we did a fantastic programme together because he said, um, we were doing a programme about music directors when he was at Covent Garden. And he said, you journalists... Know the first thing about how this works. So I said, okay, fine. And um, shut the door and said, tell us. So he did. So I said, it's a really fine thing. I, the, the only decent program I think probably I made for Radio 3, we um, did a program about music directors and how it works. And I said, if, if the managing, management of Covent Garden doesn't actually speak what, what this is about, you know, might as well cancel it. And they did. So it came out that John Tooley of Covent Garden said, this house is absolutely ghastly. I cannot run it successfully with having an opera company and a ballet company in it. Because the ballet company doesn't get a chance to properly to perform. The sight lines are dreadful for ballet. It's fine for opera. OK, what would you like? And I think he said um, uh, Theatre Royal Covent Garden, but that was owned by, by a big 
commercial company. In which case, which, which house would you like? Colosseum. Which, I thought, oh, right. Currently, um, then, even then, um, House of English National Opera. So down we go to the Colosseum and talk to George Howard, who's boss of English National Opera. Is it absolutely necessary for you to have your opera company in this house? No, absolutely not. It's a disaster for voices. What would you like? I think he said the, the uh, Palace Theatre in uh, Cambridge Circus, which was up for sale. So I put the tapes in a, in a, <laughs> in a um, taxi to the Arts Council, who then spent four years doing a, a report, which, by which time I think Lloyd Webber had bought the Cambridge Theatre and the rest is the history were still shrieking about these two opera houses. Anyway, enough. Check, um, that was all because Colin Davis was so naughty and um, I absolutely revel in him. I've just been chucking out my, my CD collection and I noticed that I have probably more recordings of the standard rep. I think it's, it's both John Elliott Gardner, but mostly from, from uh, Colin Davis. I mean, Beethoven, Tchaikovsky, Sibelius, all sorts. What was it about his approach that you liked? Very, very reticent. I asked him about this, this recording. His conducting a, style. What? Um, well, I don't know. I didn't really watch. How was it? Not two hands, you know, there's a lot of, lot of conductors who conduct with both hands all the time and you think, this is not a keep fit class. <laughs> I mean, really, you know, beating time, you don't need to beat time. It's one, you know, we all know that as performing musicians, we hope. Not sure that the conductors do, actually, the beating time. However, this is very interesting. This is the waltz. I've chosen, I've chosen none of the big stuff with Colin. I've chosen the, the, uh, a waltz from the, the serenade, one of Tchaikovsky's serenade. Good God, Natalie Tchaikovsky. <laughs> and it's as though he's holding the entire orchestra in a sort of come-dancing swoop, you know. He's, he's, the, the orchestra is the lady on his arm, and he's got his, his um, hand at her back, and they're going round, and he bends her over, as they do in come-dancing, or did. And then they start up again without falling over. So I said, "How did you? How on earth did you get that to do that with a Bavarian radial symphony orchestra? You can't imagine it's unbending of Bavarian radio. They're a fabulous orchestra for Bavarian." But um, he said, "Oh, a little jogging with Igor Stravinsky." There you are. <laughs> and now, I'm, I'm very interested that you've picked for your, your next disc, which is that fabulous final um, 12 minutes or so of uh, Strauss's Devils mm. and Cavalier. You picked a 1952 recording That's with the, Elizabeth Schwarzkopf. Now, why, why that one? That is the recording. The recording. I mean, apart from that, that, Sch that Schwarzkopf knew Strauss, and um, it's Karian conducting, and... There's also Christa Ludwig, who's the most wonderful mezzo, and Theresa Stich Randall. It's the or and Philharmonia Orchestra. It's a, it's a sort of gold standard, really. They and the thing is that the person who who was the recording manager, or I don't know how you'd call it, the producer, Walter Legg, who was married to Elizabeth Schwarzkopf, he was a stickler, an absolute stickler, that the exactly the right tone colour, the right phrasing, the right whatever. People think it's a bit mannered, but it's 
to my mind, is absolutely glorious. And unfortunately, when you have a, a, a recording like that in your mind, it's very difficult for everybody else. Um, Elizabeth Schwarzkopf, she was very funny. I interviewed her very much later about Walter Leg. Um, and she was so rude about Carrion. <laughs> Roy and the voices. When she auditioned for Walter Leg, Carrion played the piano. And she said, Walter was appalling, you know. Try this, try this phrase in this way. Try the colouring of that word. Try. She said, apparently, um, Carrion said, I've had enough of this. <laughs> shut, the, shut the music and flounced off. And so Walter Lake said, well, that's it. She said, no, I haven't finished my audition. And she played the piano while she sang. <laughs> She's very funny. Very, very funny. She was wonderful. Um, I mean, she just... When she walked into the, into the festival hall at the start of her... to do a starting a, a recital, she was very canny, very stage-worthy, so you can imagine the huge concert hall. She comes out on the left-hand side of the stage from the audience point of view. And there's follow spot, of course which illuminates her beautifully golden hair, straight from the hairdresser, no doubt. But, and she was always wore something floaty. So she walked on and allowed this whole thing to sort of gather around her. And then she walked onto the stage. And I asked her about this. She said, you know, I can't see anybody because I have such a spotlight in my eye that I can't see anybody. I'm just there with the music, which is why, well, I mean, her records are astonishing. Even though they're old-fashioned, even though lots of people say they're so mannered, and then Christa Ludwig, I met many, many years later when she was uh, an expert advice in one of the sessions of uh, Cardiff Singer of the World. So I spent two and a half hours. I remember seeing you um, introducing one of those, uh, um, like those, those, those competitions. Awful, yes. awful competitions. <laughs> <laughs> but Christa Ludwig was terrific. She was a wonderful, warm, um, intelligent mezzo. And she had, a, she, I think her husband was Walter Berry, who's a, you know, they were all top, top, top singers. But anyway, this trio is just, you know, cream, really. It's, it's just, it's just fabulous. Fabulous. I mean, yes. <laughs> moving on. Moving, moving on, on to um, something totally different. Poulenc. Right. Well, I thought after all that cream, you need a sort of, <laughs> what can you call it? Francis Poulenc, uh, bittersweet, sun comes out and then it's a shadow and then the sun comes out again. And it's full of energy and... He's also very naughty. He makes jokes in music, and jokes are sh in short supply in classical music. This concerto for two pianos is a nightmare of notes, really. And looking for a performance, I found these two young men, Lucas and Arthur Jussen, who are, I think, Dutch. I've never heard of them. Knocked out by their performance. Stefan de Neve, very nice conductor as well, with a concert by orchestra, so it must be Dutch. You just have to sort of... Uh, Relax into Poulenc because it's it's a bit like being on a on a roller coaster in the fun fair, and then you know you, you go whoosh and then suddenly uh, there's a sort of rush of notes and things like. That. Then he stops and a very very sweet tune comes in or the, the clouds come over and it's very you know. And the second movement is very very lovely. It's very slow and gorgeous. And then the, it all rips up again. <laughs> and of course, not much played. When, um, when I was around on, in, on Radio 3 and doing things, not much played because, again, it's French. You know, we don't, we don't, um, don't rate French music very much. They don't. There we are. I do. 
I haven't, I haven't put in any Debussy or Thore or who else. I mean, there's so much wonderful stuff. I like jazzy. You know, I think if, if I'm going to be on a desert island, <laughs> I want some laughter. Where, where, where would you, let us sidetrack for a moment, where would you like your desert island to be? Somewhere hot. <laughs> I thought you might say that. Somewhere hot. Somewhere hot. And less rainy. Oh, I don't mind rain. The wonderful thing about Singapore, which is steamy hot, is that every afternoon there's a huge rain shower and it cleans the whole place up. So that's quite nice. You'll be off to Singapore. Is there mm. an offshore, little offshore mm. island, there desert is. island there? I expect there is. I did spend um, a wonderful holiday, three, three weeks, on one of the, um, they're called the ABC Islands um, off the Venezuelan coasts. It's fantastic. Coral Island. And um, I went to go, went to go windsurfing, would you believe? And it had a lagoon, and the, wind, the trade winds blew at 20 miles an hour, and it was absolutely glorious. And the sea was warm, fantastic. Sounds like your desert island. My yeah. desert island, yes. Yes, yes I believe the islands are very beautiful, the offshore islands of Venezuela. They are. And we, we move on to a complete contrast now. Eartha Kitt. Eartha Kitt. Santa baby, which I love. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, you see, having been such a seriously trained classic musician and having worked for Radio 3, hello, this is your Auntie Rotter with your aunt afternoon's music, where jokes were not allowed and, you know, it was a very serious canon of music that could be played, which I tried very hard to break. And one or two of Radio 3 producers, who never lasted terribly long, much younger than me, had, been, had also sort of grown up with the Beatles and so on, that sort of thing. So knew all about the value of pop music, light music. But I, I can't remember why I first knew about Eartha Kitt, but it must have been because she was my father's favourite. Anyway, so she was... She was um, sort of naughty, so things like, um, like Santa Baby, what would you know, and what, what was Valentine's Day, like oil wells with a drip, drip, drip into the barrels, you know, what is that, old age is taking me over. When I was in New York, over something or other, we went to the Carlisle Hotel, which runs supper clubs, where, you know, you're sitting there having supper or a drink or whatever, and there's an entertainment of a singer or a pianist or so light music always, or show music. But anyway, a performer. And we'd seen that Eartha Kitt was on, booked, went. It was a night that Clinton was giving his State of the Union speech after Mrs. Lew Ms. Lewinsky. So not many people were there. Anyway, Eartha Kitt turned up. She was in her 70s. And she was wearing the most revealing dress, totally covered from top to toe in very clinging silk and absolutely no underpinning. Extraordinary. And she gave us, must have been an hour, hour and a half, fantastic performance, being thoroughly wicked with all the chaps who were probably on honeymoon, their wives sort of sitting, you know. She was terrific. So she's sort of always been, been um, uh, part of the light music canon, although there's a lot more people now, I can tell you, and I'm paying this one because by the last weekend that I spent with my father, she was being broadcast live, TV, I think from the Hippodrome in London. And there was this thing. My father was in bed. I was sitting next door to him. There was a telly at the foot of his bed. And there was this 
carpet was brought on stage by two huge persons and unrolled and went about the stage and she then stopped just before the footlights with her head and on her on her she came chin. out of the carpet she came out of the carpet with her head on her chin i mean her chin on her yes her head on her chin no you know what i mean her hand on her chin looking straight into my father's face i thought he was going to expire with complete and utter ecstasy <laughs> and she sang so she um she was uh, she was there. He did die about three days later. But, um, with that happy memory. With that <laughs> happy memory. It was very funny. Father, behave yourself. Um, and then I was, on, I was on air on Classic FM, which was I spent my latter years. On Christmas Day, we heard she died. So I paid Santa Baby for her. So, of course, you had to pick it. Exactly. There were no complaints, which is interesting. If I'd done it on Radio 3, there would have been hysteria. Lots, lots of closet fans, you mean, of her kid tuned in. I mean, there these singers. You know, I, I picked Schwarzkopf because she's absolutely amazing, but of all the other singers, and I only have only eight records. You know, I could, there was another one I, I, I met later years called Barbara Cook. Absolutely astonishing singer. She was, had a big career right at the beginning with, with um, Bernstein's Candide when she did Glitter and Gay, astonishing coloratura soprano. But then something happened and she lost her way and um, became, I think, had a huge breakdown until she was rescued by a session pianist and then had another career doing song recitals. Fantastic song recitals, a huge following of people. Died a couple of years ago. So, you know, there are lots and lots of wonderful singers who are never on the radar if you're a classical musician, or were a classical musician, in my day. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, right, Natalie, we move on to your final, your eighth disc, which is uh, Vaughan Williams' Lark yeah. Ascending, which is just, that's the quintessential English. But it, to me, it's also full of nostalgia and, and sadness if you look back and think. It's, it was, it, it, you know, if you look back and think what the country was like then and how many larks there would have been singing in the skies. That's one of the things. The other thing is that Vaughan Williams wrote it not only for the countryside, but also in memorial, memoriam of the war, the First World War. No, I mean, it's, it is absolutely quintessential. And it's re I played that because my life is now a music-free zone. Apart, which from. is amazing, given that you know yeah. this. This is what you did for most of your adult 40 life, something your, your years or more. Music, yeah. no, more, more than forty years, fifty something years. Anyway, yes, um, because there's too much nonsense running around one's head. I'm just clearing out my record library. Astonishing how many dreadful pieces of music there are in it. And um, so anyway, it's it's quite a. a, a salutary celebration of the end of that but not lark ascending it's not surprising that it's been classic fm's favorite cd for years and years and years except it's been knocked off by rack rachman and second piano concerto i think probably because they saw brief encounter on the telly recently however vaughan williams and lark Ascending. i mean it is it's absolutely amazing and if you think about the time it was written, which is the sort of 20s, and all, all before the you know, end of the First World War, before all the sort of um, jazz age came in and things like that, it's very, very atmospheric. It's, it's not quite right. Vaughan Williams being a countryman, Gloucestershire, much derided by 
um, a new generation of, of music people who took over the music world, classical music world, after the war here. And indeed, the Lark Ascending. Interesting performance with Nigel Kennedy, who has come out six skins less than everybody else, who seems to... Well, he lives in somewhere awful like North London. <laughs> but uh, he is really in tune with, with what's, what's around. And he's the only musician, apart from Kate Bush, where I've had to stop the car to listen to something they've been playing on the radio and thinking, who the hell is that? And it's Nigel. It was the Brahms concerto the first time around. But he's, he is a very precious performer. But he does silly things like um, playing jazz and supporting, I've forgotten which frightful football club. <laughs> and really annoying um, uh, the pundits because he won't play the game for them. But who cares? Listen to this. I mean, the, it's the hush of him. You know, you know it starts with a, a sort of hum. I'm going to cry. Then the bird comes in. And of course the ending. It is, it is to me, it's, it's one of the most pictorial pieces of music I've ever heard. You know, because you, you, can, you can see and you can hear that wonderful little lark. And the larks are back already. I heard one on a walk last week. Aha, uh -huh. where? <laughs> oh, <laughs> over, over towards, above Yeovilton. Because I think they're all up here on, on um, Hamilton Hill as well, I heard. Well, that's the whole point about being in Dorset, is far from the madding crowd. And you certainly are here. Certainly are here. And um, not... You know, I really would have to make an awful effort to get into the car to go and hear a performance of something or other, so it's terribly easy to say no thank you. Um, and go into the garden and listen to what's around. The, na I mean, the natural musician. The natural I mean. musician. I mean, the, you know, if you were, there's a composer, Olivier Messiaen, who used to write a lot of music with birdsong, much to the vision of, of um, birdsong and God much to the derision of, of uh, critics. and Another one of those Frenchmen. Another one of those Frenchmen, indeed. And an organist as well, please. <laughs> so that these huge pieces sort of re relate everything together. But just so, so sitting outside, in, we have a lovely sun trap out here with the, which gets the evening sun, so you know, the magic cocktail hour, you can listen to what's going on. There are so many birds I have no idea about. They, you know, far, far, far removed from the London chatter of sparrows and whatever, pigeons and things. And outside our kitchen window, there's a massive box tree, which I refuse to trim, and it's known as Chateau Sparrow. We are, we are not, we're not following the, the sort of stately home rules of trimming and <laughs> snipping. Very untidy garden, this. And there's an enormous bay tree, which is known as the Tits Ritz, because it's full of tits. <laughs> and we're waiting to find our pond populator. We, we dug it last year, and uh, literally half an hour after the, the chaps left with their machines and so on, sitting there having a look at it, and the sky was swarming with star, um, swallows, swallows and house martins, just said, Oh, look, there's something new here. 
So we're waiting them to come back. Uh, but, you know, and we were with a neighbour who said, I haven't seen the House Martins for years here. So, you know, that's the sort of thrill of being here. And uh, there's no need to listen to music at all. Or the telly. Or the radio. What about this? You're allowed to have one book. It's going to be a very well-thumbed book. What's well, it it's huge. It's huge. I was going to say I'd, I'd, I could ditch the Bible because it's very boring for me, but, but Peter Frankopan, his Silk Roads, The Silk Roads, A New History of the World, is absolutely essential reading. I haven't really had time to do more than dip, but it's a very, very fat book, and it reassesses the whole history of the world, which Western world starts in Jerusalem and goes westward. And it's all about, you know, the European history. Whereas Frankopan says that it, it's, he saw a map which had Jerusalem as the centre of the world. And it's all about the Silk Roads going east and coming west with names like Tamburlaine and Genghis Khan and, and places like Isfahan. Quite a lot of the places I know, I've been to, because I used to escape from music, never, never stayed for the proms, but always went on holiday in a, in a Land Rover somewhere around there. So that's why... That book is chosen. And whilst I'm reading that... You're going mm, to have a tipple. Of course. This hour of charm at six o'clock. <laughs> I've asked J&B Whiskey, J&B Rare, from Jostarini and Brooks, a very old firm. It's a lovely light whiskey, which I usually drink with soda, but it's so light you can just sip it. And... I was minded of, of Compton Mackenzie's whiskey galore, so I hope when I'm shipwrecked, this <laughs> there will be cases of it bobbing along. It's got quite a long way to go to get to one of those Venezuelan islands. And but I'm sure. Well, the thing is, you can't buy it here. You know, you can buy it abroad. But you probably could actually get it in the Caribbean. Yeah, then. yeah absolutely. I mean, it's extraordinary. I, I'm desperate to find it here. I have to buy it direct from J and B, Justerini and Brooks. Whereas. Continental groceries, there it is. <laughs> Natalie Ween giving her choice of Dorset Island discs with a few small extraneous noises from Millie the dog. It's now a common cry. Does anyone know of an NHS dentist? But why is the lack of NHS dental care such an issue? Rachel Rowe investigates the problem in Dorset. When was the last time you saw a dentist? Are you even able to access an NHS dentist? With NHS dentistry becoming harder to find, but across the entire county, what is happening to the provision of dental health care? A patient comments in the HealthWatch Dorset report, After many, many months of searching and calling and emailing different dentists, I am yet to find one taking on NHS patients. I have a severe need to see an NHS dentist, as I'm really unable to eat because of the pain which has led to weight loss and other health complications. I am a young adult who doesn't work currently due to disability and illness and am unable to pay for private dentistry treatment, which I have explored too. How many see an NHS dentist? Data from NHS England shows that fewer than half the adults in the southwest have seen a dentist in the last two years. If they end up with a problem, chances are they will not be able to access NHS dental care. HealthWatch Dorset has recently published a report on the state of dental access in the county. The recent survey of Dorset's 93 dental practices found that, at the end of 2022, none was taking new NHS patients. 
So what is happening and how is care being prioritised? Healthwatch Dorset manager Louise Bate explained what had caused her most concern about the report. Last year, when we did this questionnaire, there were three dentists taking patients. This year, there are none. It's getting worse. Even if the contracts are changed, there are no dentists. Of the 78 dental practices that responded to the Health Watch survey, none was taking new NHS adult patients. 17 now only treat private patients, and only 18 were accepting new NHS patients if they are children. Seven practices said they were accepting patients with additional needs, and 23 practices had waiting lists, half of which were more than 12 months long. Dorset's below average. Maps indicate that there are dentists in North Dorset, but they are not taking any NHS patients right now. The South West Dental Reform Group is a network which sets the strategy for NHS dentistry in the West Country, including Dorset. Membership includes regional and local staff. Their assessment of future needs in Dorset identified several significant issues for the future of dentistry. For example, by 2028, Dorset's population will have increased by 3%, or an additional 23,708 people. While the child population will have decreased by 6%, older adults, 65 plus, will have increased by 18%, or 35,504 additional people. So, in addition to finding dentists to serve more residents, there will also be a need to provide extra services to manage the complex dental needs of older people. Louise identified a further issue. Because of the way the dental contract is currently set up, dentists see the easiest people to manage, those needing basic checkups. That means it's much harder for people with complex needs to get an appointment. How many people can actually get to see a dentist? The South West Dental Reform Group reviewed the data and found that access to children's dental services in the last year was 48.9%, below the average for England of 53%. Access to adult NHS dentistry in Dorset is also below the national average at 45.6%. The England average is 47.1%. That's a significant gap between those who should be able to see a dentist and those who don't or cannot. How is dental care funded? Until April this year, NHS Dentistry was commissioned by NHS England. From April, dentistry is under the control of the Local Integrated Care System, ICS. Louise is encouraged by this. I'm more positive now the ICS is taking over responsibility. There's an opportunity to use local incentives. I'd like to see children prioritised. If we don't, we are setting ourselves up for a generation of dental problems. I'd also like to see better access for vulnerable people. With local commissioning of dental services, there are also opportunities to design services to meet the needs of the population. Louise already has thoughts. I'd like to see more joint working with the voluntary sector. For example, people access mental health services because their teeth are problematic. People are unable to eat properly, they become malnourished, and voluntary groups contact us for advice. Chief Commissioning Officer for the NHS Dorset Integrated Care Board, David Freeman, says... From the 1st of April, we will have a much greater opportunity to work with local people, dentists and other specialists in our area to develop new and different ways of working. We've already started this work, from helping children and families with good dental hygiene to designing extra services to meet more complex dental needs. We are developing plans for improvements this year. What can you do now? 
If you have toothache and don't have access to a dentist, Louise Bate advises the best course of action is to dial NHS 111 to discuss your needs. And keep looking for appointments, because some NHS slots do come up. Clearly, the NHS will be busy working to improve access to dentistry this year. However, there has never been a better time to ensure we all practice good dental hygiene, stop smoking and reduce sugar intake to avoid tooth decay as much as possible. And that's it for episode three of the April 2023 BV Magazine podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. Join us again in May. Until then, it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett. And until next time, it's goodbye from me, Jenny Devitt.